Welcome to the Kyle Coster Show. My name is Kyle Coster. My guest today is Brian Jeffra. He's the editor-in-chief of The Big Lead. It's a website. Perhaps you've heard of it. We were talking earlier in the day as in a series of fortunate or unfortunate events, depending on your rooting interest, we've just had a cascade of large news, most of it of the basketball variety come in. First, this morning, we heard about some tumult in the Boston Celtics organization, a lot of shifting pieces there. And we can get into that a little bit later. But just moments ago, we got news about something that's been whispered about for a while. There's kind of been speculation that Coach K's time at Duke was nearing an end, but we got confirmation from Jeff Goodman was first that this will be his last season. He will have a bit of a victory farewell tour with the Blue Devils. You look at his coaching career, he is the picture of longevity. What he accomplished there will likely never be replicated. I guess that Jay Wright would have an argument if he wins four more titles over the next 20 years, which is very possible considering how good of a coach he is. Brian, what was your first reaction to hearing the Coach K news? I mean, I'm a Duke hater, so my first reaction was I was happy that he was finally stepping aside. It seemed to me like he had kind of lost touch over the last couple of years. It's, I mean, he won a national championship a couple of years ago, so it's weird to say that. But, you know, the, the thing with the student newspaper reporter, the whole COVID, are we playing, are we not playing, it just, it just felt like this past year was not Coach K. It wasn't the Coach K that I knew when I was covering him when I went to Elon University and I was working for the Burlington Times News. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, kind of like Phil Mickelson winning the PGA Championship, I eventually got over my personal dislike of the person. And I said, I look back and I go, I mean, five-time national championship, most wins in college basketball, um, you know, you, you might hate him like I did for so many years, but you probably hated him because he was so damn good at it. So I kind of went through that gamut of emotion of like, yes, I hate you. I'm happy you're gone to wow. What a remarkable career. And, and he really should be celebrated and, and lauded for all that he did taking a, taking a program that was non-existent before he came there and turning it into the national powerhouse that it's become. Duke became the Yankees of college basketball. It certainly was not the Yankees when he arrived on campus. Emerging as this titanic villain from a, a small private school in North Carolina uh, on the world stage is really a testament to how much he was able to elevate the brand. It's the biggest college basketball brand in my eye, in my eyes because I think it's just shorthand. I think at this point, Duke is shorthand for the halves. Uh, versus the have-nots as as across sports. A lot of people seem surprised about this. You mentioned the changing landscape. Coach K has been outspoken in being resistant to some of the changes that have been affecting college basketball. And I think a lot of times when an older, more successful coach voices some concerns about the state of the game and where it's moving, they're seen as being out of touch. I think that there's a lot of validity to some of the complaints the coaches have. I think that the transfer portal is out of control. It's certainly making the coaching job far more difficult. And it's also not allowing fans to appreciate a player when they come on campus as a freshman and 
maturing and seeing what type of player they become as a senior, as a fan of Michigan state, as an alum of Michigan state, I have a special fondness in my heart and seeing the player development side of college basketball, which I think is out the window. Some facts here. He's 74 years old, 74 years old, considering all the wear and tear that he's done, considering how much more difficult his job is going to become. These college coaching jobs are becoming going to become more like NBA front offices in terms of like player management year to year, far more than they ever were. I'm not surprised to see him stepping away. And I'm also not surprised to see that he's doing it kind of in a way that's going to leave Duke in good hands. I think we believe that John Shire will be the successor. He's probably not going to lose a lot of commitments, but I am not particularly shocked by it at all. I'm not shocked at all. I think the the biggest shock was that I found out he was 74. As you said, he looks so much younger. My dad's 78 and he looks like he's got to be about a hundred years older than Mike Krzyzewski. So, you know, kudos to him for staying in shape. One of the things that gets overlooked is, is all that travel that these coaches do. It's insane. You know, all the, the miles that guy has flown. And even as the team USA coach, I mean, if you look at, at his career and how long he's been doing it, it's insane that he physically can still do that. And then, as you mentioned, Michigan State still has Tom Izzo. Syracuse still has Jim Beheim. That was a secondary thought of mine was, you know, and, and Roy Williams just retired this offseason. Um, I was wondering, did Krzyzewski try and steal his? That was when I was in my anger phase of, of Mike Krzyzewski, and I, I don't like him. Is he trying to steal the, the thunder from Roy Williams' retirement? Um, but it's, it's interesting to think about who's next, right? Uh, Beheim and, and Izzo seem like the most likely candidates, but the entire landscape of college basketball from the time that you and I started watching it um, and can remember watching it in the early nineties is out the window now. And the coaches that have survived, it's amazing that they have. And it's a, again, a testament to their uh, ability to, to kind of learn on the fly and, and, and evolve with the times. Um, but also the physical toll that this takes on these coaches is, is incredible. And yeah, they have great assistant coaches I'll be interested to see what happens with Duke because as easy as it is to say, you know, this guy, we're not going to lose recruits, but like you mentioned it earlier, like as much as Duke is a brand coach K that name is a brand and what he's done there, not only winning national championships, but then rolling out these first round picks, these number one overall picks who many of them haven't honestly gone on to NBA success, but still they got picked. They made millions of dollars. He's almost done what Nick Saban has done in college football, in college basketball, which is much harder because of exactly what you said. In college football, you have to at least wait three years before you're allowed to go. You could be a superstar like Trevor Lawrence as a freshman, but Dabo Sweeney didn't have to worry about, you know, who was going to be his quarterback the year after they won the national championship. He had two more years of him guaranteed because of the way the rules are set up. In college, you could be the sixth man on Duke and be a first round pick. I mean, it's insane to say, but that's just the truth. So, um, you know, I, I know I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but I think the, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that what Coach K did and the way that he was able to evolve through the years is amazing. And I just wonder what these coaches who are still treading water, because that's what they're doing at this point, how much longer they're going to last. Yeah, it's undeniable that there's a shift happening. And I think as our society is more receptive to player agency, accepting of players' rights. Um, and for a long time, college basketball has existed with kind of an inequitable 
power structure, right? That's the complaint you hear about Izzo when he gets into his players. That's the complaint you hear about Bayheim. It's leveling out a little bit. And on one hand, I think that that's a really good thing, but it also kind of is going to leave this vacuum for the sport as a whole, which like you alluded to earlier, the coaches have been the stars, right? And I don't think that the game is in a place where the players can be the stars, especially with all these leagues trying to like these developmental leagues, trying to take the best talent and taking the best players away from the from college basketball. How could the players ever really be the stars in college basketball when there's no continuity? So one of my big fears is I, I, I think that a lot of people get dismissed by saying negative things about the transfer transfer portal or you know, that you're shining shoes for these legendary coaches. But I do wonder about interest in the sport if there aren't these huge names, because who's going to be the next? Is Shaka Smart going to move the needle in 10 years? Like, are we going to be creating these new coaches who become cults of personalities, both good and bad? I think it's I, I think it's still going to be about the team. I agree with you that college basketball has been about the coaches over the last, you know, since, I mean, since the 40s, really. Um, with with uh, with Wooden in UCLA. I mean, obviously, since then, there's always been that kind of figure, you know, Bob Knight, you know, was a, was a crazy figure. So I, I think that, yeah, there'll still be a couple of them. But the reality is, is it's kind of similar to college football, where you just root for the teams that you like. And just like I hated Duke, it didn't matter who they were playing against. I was always rooting for the other team. So I, I think it's going to become more about the schools. And, and the reality is, uh, Kyle, that I think you're actually going to get your wish. I think that there's going to be more development because even if you look at it, forgetting the fact that the NBA is going to end that rule when LeBron James Jr. is, is able to come because they know the marketing dollars that they can make on that and forgetting um, you know, the fact that they still have the opportunity to go to Australia or Greece or wherever in Europe that they want to go and play. Look at what overtime is doing with this like random thing where they're going to give you $100,000 no matter you know, whether you're a five-star recruiter or a three-star recruit. They're going to pay for your college if you, you know, don't make it as a pro, like there's going to be more of these leagues that just pop up that are going to be competing against the NCAA. So to me, it's actually going to become more about the school. And, you know, I'm a Michigan State guy. I mean, I'm saying for you, you know, I'm a Michigan State guy. I'm going to watch Michigan State no matter what. And I'm going to love these guys. But you can't assume that these coaches are the coaches are going to follow the money. That's where it's become, you know, that's where sports are going in general. Everyone's just following the money. These players are going to follow the money. And what's going to be left are, you know, these players who probably wouldn't have been starting before these changes happen and a bunch of people who still just love these schools and love the March Madness tournament. And it can't be replaced by overtimes tournament or whatever's happening in the, you know, Australian basketball league. Um, You know, so I just think it's going to be about the schools and the coaches that stick around who win, you know, they, they could become but you're right. I mean, Jay Wright, he's not like, he's a great guy. Like he seems like a really cool guy. I've never interviewed him or anything like that, but he's not a personality like coach K coach K. You just looked at his face and you're like, I, I love you or I hate you. There was no in between. And that's what you need to be a personality in sports. I wonder if getting older has made me more reluctant to change, or if it's given me the experience to know that you don't know what you have until it's gone. I know a lot of people are probably like, all right, good riddance, coach K let's get this new era in there. But 
the college basketball experience is going to be so much emptier without him. Like imagine watching those, those Duke games are not going to be the same. And especially if it's John Shire, John Shire's a great dude, but he's certainly not the biggest villain in the room. It's kind of like, are we going to get to a place where we don't have these things that have become our comfort food for all this time? Like, the Patriots dynasty has been incredible for the NFL for the small portion of people who identify as Patriot fans, but also for the larger group have who have tuned in to try to see them lose or watch Tom Brady fail on the big stage. When that goes away, a vacuum exists and you never really know what's coming. Like look at the NBA post LeBron James. Yes. There are a ton of people there who could take the mantle but they won't be the singular generational like cultural touchstone that that LeBron James was. And you wonder if like the sum of the parts ever equals the one large personality. What you really wonder is if Skip Bayless is going to have a job when LeBron James retires. And, you know, that can't come soon enough either. But <laughs> um, no, I, I, I agree with you. You know, I'm a history guy. So, of course, I'm down to get down to the nostalgia lane with you. Um, and as you were saying that, I immediately thought, yeah, I'm not going to care about Duke the same way, which is interesting when you think about a ratings perspective and, you know, the rights to, you know, uh, have these games broadcast. Like, I'm not really going to care about Duke nearly as much unless Shire comes out and is just a complete jerk or like, you know, says something ridiculous. It's an interesting point. I don't. Yes. Listen, everything's always going to change. But just like the NFL how when I grew up, it was a running, you know, running game and smash mouth defense and the quarterbacks weren't protected at all. It's literally flipped 180 degrees on its head. And I love the game more than ever. So like, I, you know, I, I guess I'm going to come at it from a standpoint of let's see what ha- I'm actually more interested to see what happens with some of these other leagues. Like, is overtime like are they going to get anybody i know they just got some five star recruits like are they going to get anybody that's going to actually move the needle to the point where i'm going to want to watch that game like I, that's the interesting thing to me for me college basketball has always been just that thing that you do on a saturday afternoon you know and and i'll continue to do that where applicable but to your point i'm not going to care about duke nearly as much so before the coach k news came on our doorstep we got word that the Danny Ainge era in Boston which has existed since 2003 is over and additionally Brad Stevens is moving from the sidelines to the front office I know that Ainge has kind of been vilified in a lot of circles as being an underachiever during his tenure there there's been some questionable management and, and and so many people have gotten on him for almost making the big trade almost doing the thing that gets the Celtics over the hump but I think when you look at the totality of his regime there it was an overwhelming success and I think it just goes and shows that you can be good for a while you can accomplish the highest highs of bringing a championship to a city but you don't get the extended grace period that you once did. Even with Stevens, there was some people were souring on Stevens and and not comparing him to a presidential candidate as much as they used to, even though Pete Buttigieg looks exactly like him. So that kind of kept it alive for a while. But Stevens and Ainge, that partnership, that went to the Eastern Conference Finals three times in seven years. I don't really see why it's a failure. I think it's an example of, Sports teams and organizations understand that the attention span of the viewer and attention span of the local fan has never been shorter. And it's not worth operating at a, at a situation where you achieve maybe 85% of your goals. You need to take the swing and see if you can 
accomplish a hundred, even if that means a larger risk in the near and long term. In my opinion, that's kind of how I'm reading the Celtics situation. What about you? You know, the only person who gets away with it is Pat Riley. You know, the Heat make it to the finals and he gets celebrated as like putting together this amazing team. Um, but you know, the, the, the reality is, is that it was just a confluence of events, especially, you know, what happened with COVID and the way Jimmy Butler played, but getting back to, to Ainge. Yes. I think if you look at the totality of what he was able to accomplish, uh, you know, two NBA finals appearances, one NBA finals, uh, win, um, I think they made it to the Eastern conference finals, three of the last five years or something like that. It's certainly impressive, but as you said, he almost set the bar too high in those first years where then everybody just assumed that the Celtics would make it back at some point. And then when they made that deal, when they fleeced the nets and the nets sucked and they got all those picks, it was like, okay, well now this is our time to to make either a big move or to draft somebody who's going to be really good. And while Tatum certainly has turned out to be a a star, speaking of Duke, um, you know, he doesn't, he's not the guy who's taking them over the top. And that Ainge couldn't see that or wasn't willing to, as you said, make that big swing for an Anthony Davis, you know, you, you have to just take that, that loss on the chin. And I think that's the thing with Ainge is if you're smart enough and you're able to take a step back and say, wow, the, the Celtics sucked before he came there. And obviously they're a storied franchise, but they hadn't done anything in, 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 since the Larry Bird era. Um, you know, so if you look at the totality of what he was able to do to kind of bring that franchise and keep that franchise for nearly two decades at the top or the very top of the NBA, you have to say it was a success. But again, he set too high of a bar initially. He created all of these opportunities and then he wasn't able to take advantage. And if you look back, you know, at at what he inherited, he kind of inherited the Paul Pierce, you know, KG thing. He made the great trade for Ray Allen, not taking that away from him to kind of create that first big three. But, you know, KG wanted to come there. It wasn't like Danny Ainge was the reason KG went there. You know, he wanted to play with Paul Pierce. um, And then, you know, he makes the smart trade and they have this big three and they win some stuff. But then remember, he kept that together a little bit too long. He probably kept that group together a little bit too long. And then once he was finally able to break it up and get this King's ransom, he wasn't able to, to pawn it off for anything other than, you know, I guess Jason Tatum, you could say he's a Rolex, but he certainly isn't like those $100,000 watches that Rafa Nadal is wearing on the tennis courts. I think my my buddy Isaac, who's a Pistons fan, sent a tweet out a few weeks ago that said, you know, going into next season, I think I'm more confident in what the Pistons have going forward than what the Celtics have going forward. And at the time, it was seen as the hottest take. I initially did the SpongeBob meme where I was like, where am I? Like all over the place. I was, <laughs> I was very rattled by it, but the more I got to thinking about it I, and, and how much disconnect and how many moving parts there are in that Celtics organization and where it can go. I think that there might be something there and you can use any stand in you can use the Charlotte Hornets uh, franchise that's further along in their development than the Detroit Pistons. If you want as, as a realistic stand in, I think it's a major, major organizational change, but it also presents the situation. I have seen Becky Hammond's name thrown around uh, for the head coaching position would be a tremendously progressive and trailblazing choice as a coach. I don't know if it's going to work out. I mean, if you're the city of Boston and you want a panacea to solve all these issues about what you are as a fan base that's been pushed on you, 
fairly or unfairly or most likely a mix of both what better way to usher in a new era of Boston sports fans than going that route we know that Stevens is is a fan of her work I think that Stevens I want to focus on what he's doing in all this let me lay out how he's structured his career and how brilliant it is okay he's at Butler he does the impossible and he brings the Bulldogs to two straight national title games I mean, that is an absurd, absurd accomplishment, perhaps unrivaled in all of basketball at any level over the last 50 years. Butler, the Cinderella of Cinderella, a Gordon Hayward heave, which was right online away from being national champions. He parlays that into a job with the Boston Celtics, the most storied of the NBA franchise. He excels there. He has a nice honeymoon where everybody's like, this is the guy. This is the savior. This is going to be our next Red Arbach. This is the guy who's going to be here for 30 years. Then he decides that, you know what? I'm a family guy. Basketball is not my number one priority. He's extremely well-adjusted. He understands the grind of coaching. NBA coaching is tough in the era of players being megawatt superstars and the coaches being basically telling them when to go on the court. Um, and, and not really having that that iron hand, which again is not Steven's forte. And he decides to go to the front office, which is a much better work balance. Uh, he's going to be sipping lattes and working an office job. He's only 45 years old. And if he wants to build an empire there, it's a far better view than being on the sideline. A lot less headaches, a lot less scrutiny. He seems like the type of person who would be perfect for an office job. If you showed me a picture of him, I'd be like, okay, well, Jason Sudeikis is going to play this guy who works a boring uh, office job in a, in a fun romp um, with, with Charlie day. I think that he has expertly set himself up to have a tremendous second life as an executive. Uh, and I really think that he's ahead of the eight ball on a lot of this stuff. I, I'll be interested. I think he should go to Duke. That's, that's well, my take. <laughs> But it's not an outrageous take because that has been rumored before. This gives him a bit of a buffer. I think they're going to name Shire by the end of the day, probably by the time that I edit this podcast. But it's not unreasonable to think that that's an option somewhere down the road because if he can show that he can handle roster management at the NBA level, he's already added, shown that he can do that at the collegiate level. And if he can merge the two and he can handle the pressure and he does it at a place that understands and values tradition. What better thing to put on your CV? Yeah. I, you know, I'll be interested to see because recruiting in high school is a lot different than recruiting in professional, right? Like, and I, I said high school, but you're recruiting high school kids versus recruiting grown men. Um, and honestly, what does Brad Stevens have to show them that would give them a feeling that he's building something special? Yeah, I mean, they made it to, again, three of the five, you know, Eastern Conference Finals, but they couldn't get over that hump. And in some of those series, it felt like he was woefully overcoached, even though, as you said, NBA coaches now are basically, you know, time managers, right? They're they're just using statistics to say, okay, this person is better against, you know, this opponent, and I should have him in for these minutes versus those minutes. So, you know, it, it, it'll be interesting to see what, like, how people are, how players are going to react to this. Like, you know, whoever the next, you know, free agent is that the next big free agent, like, is he even going to be able to keep Jalen Brown this off season? Like if I'm Jalen Brown, I'm jumping shit because I don't see why I would want to be there other than Jason Tatum. 
So, you know, I, I, I don't know that I'm as much of a believer in his ability, Brad Stevens' ability to transition from college coach to NBA coach to front office executive. I think there are very select few people who have been able to do that. And all of those people had had won. They had won at the highest level, which is winning a championship, not getting to an Eastern Conference final. So, you know, that that's the thing to me is that you kind of have to, even going back to that anecdote that Pat Riley loves to talk about when he met with LeBron James and he was just wearing his championship rings with the Lakers and he just put his hands on the table. And that was basically the selling point to LeBron. Now, yes, he talked about family and LeBron liked that element. And he talked to LeBron about, you know, kind of uh, teaching him the ropes of how to be a GM and kind of how to, how to lead a franchise. But like, it was those rings that were on his finger that made LeBron James say, okay, I want to come there. So if you're talking about that upper echelon, super elite player, which the NBA is run by today, are they going to look at Brad Stevens and be like, that's the guy who's going to take me to the next level. If I'm like, even like thinking one layer down from LeBron James, right? Like a Paul George, who obviously has, has not lived up to what everybody thought he was going to be. But if I'm Paul George, am I looking at the Celtics because, you know, Brad Stevens is now the GM and being like, that's where I'm going to go when I'm done with the Clippers. And to me, it's an unknown. I'm not going to say it's a no, but I don't, it's a very big unknown. And so I, I think that, you know, it's, it's kind of a bold move by the Celtics, to be honest, to, to give him this opportunity with little or nothing to show for his ability to succeed in it. All right. Let me give you the blueprint for success and you, Love it. you think it's reasonable. Okay. Stevens transitions to the front office, right? Where he's largely big picture. Seems like a pretty good manager. Seems to have the exact right temperament for a front office person. Maybe not the exact right temperament for an NBA head coach, at least the, classic version of a fiery head coach that we all grew up with, which again is probably a dinosaur in, in today's game. The Celtics are then able to install a coach who is not being relied on entirely for the X and O schematics, but the ability to relate to players. Okay. Let me give you the blueprint, the Brooklyn Nets. Was there anything about the Brooklyn Nets front office that suggested that they were these conquering heroes the Brooklyn Nets are likely NBA champions when this is all said and done because they were able to assemble the best talent and codify it under a coach in Steve Nash who can really relate to players because he's been there and, and he's friends with them. He has those existing relationships. He knows what it's like to distribute the basketball between superstars, you know, in a high-profiled offense. I think that what Steven's greatest gift could be is standing back, being in the big picture, seeing as this steady, continuous basketball mind who's going to have an even hand and not overreact to things, but not be afraid of new things because he's young enough to try them and then have a player's coach who is basically doing the day-to-day -day stuff. That's fair enough, but remember that Sean Marks for four years built something in Brooklyn with nothing because he had lost because the Nets had lost all those picks to the Celtics that Danny Ainge wasn't able to do anything with, right? So I get where you're coming from. It's the Nets example. You're right. There was no reason why Kevin Durant should want to go there based on what they had done, what they had accomplished the previous three years. But remember, there's a big difference. First of all, Brooklyn is a lot cooler than Boston. It's just that simple. In the perception of, of players and the perception of people, Brooklyn is cool. Boston is meh. Right. So that's number one. Number two, Sean Marks had actually built a great players culture there. 
Um, and I even forget the coach that they fired, but they fired him because he wasn't a player's coach. That's the sort of organization that a Kevin Durant looks at and says, oh, wow, this guy fired somebody because Spencer Dinwiddie didn't like him. Imagine what he's going to do for me, right? So I think that Kevin Durant and you know Kyrie Irving and then obviously James Harden with the trade saw that this was an organization in a cool city. They also all hated the Knicks, right? They kind of wanted to stick it to the Knicks. There's no reason why would I go to the Celtics? They're not trying to stick it to the Knicks a second time. So I, I understand what you're saying. And I think, again, I, that's why I said, I didn't say that I don't think he can do a good job with the Celtics. I just don't, I just personally could see it going really awry because he doesn't have the cachet. He doesn't have the trust of players um, around the league and he doesn't have the, the coolness of, of this city uh, atmosphere where, as you mentioned, fair or not, Boston has a bad reputation. Yeah. I think he's, I think Brad Stevens has an uphill climb with the Celtics. I don't think that he was put in a really great position to succeed. And I don't necessarily know that, you know, just because he has a, a, a calm demeanor or he's like a, a less fiery version of somebody else. I mean, quite frankly, if, I, if I'm looking, if I'm a player, I'd be looking again at like a Pat Riley and being like, that guy's like a hundred years old and he's still out there going crazy all the time. Like that's the guy I want, you know, kind of leading my franchise and, and the guy who I know who I have faith is going to be able to recruit these people. I think that, you know, if you look around the NBA and where players are kind of flocking to, it's, it's, you know, places that either they have all the power like a Giannis, right? Why did Giannis stay with the bucks for this extension? He, well, he had power. He had the ability to make this big payday and he wanted to stay where he felt comfortable. He didn't necessarily want to go to a place where there's going to be this crazy, you know, media storm. So it makes sense for him. But then, you know, these other players who are kind of the ones who are flip-flopping teams all the time, they're going to them, to those teams for specific reasons, right? Whether it's Kwai going to LA because he thought that he was going to be able to make the Clippers the new Lakers, or it's, you know, KD and Kyrie going to Brooklyn because they saw this opportunity to basically make this team and compete against a team that they hated. Um, it, there's, there's a reason why they go there. And I just don't see the reason why players would go to Boston. Okay, quickly, maybe the last question to answer on this is, if Steven stays in the front office role for seven years, do the Celtics match three conference title appearances? I say no, based on what is happening with the Eastern Conference. The Eastern Conference is only getting stronger. It is, it is maybe the better one now, especially if this LA thing blows up and Anthony Davis is not able to get out on the court and be a meaningful factor as, as uh, the one or the 1A superstar but you look at the you look at the Nets, and then you also have some teams on the come up, like the Hawks are really showing me something in the playoffs. And we can laugh about the Knicks or uh, you know celebrate the one the one playoff game that they had. But we would agree that their future is definitely bright there, especially if they can get a high profile acquisition. That's not even saying anything about Philadelphia and Milwaukee. So I just think that it's so crowded in the East that if we're holding the standard, is 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 Stevens going to be as successful in the front office by the bottom line as he was when a coach. I, I think that's a firm no for me, unless something changes dramatically. Yeah, it's a, it's a firm no for me too. And, you know, the interesting thing about the conferences is that, you know, look at Joel Embiid. The 76ers are one injury away at all times from being irrelevant in the NBA. If, if Embiid tears his meniscus, which just obviously happened and he can't play, you might as well throw them out of the conversation in, in terms of top teams. The Nets, the Nets could be done after next season. You know, if, if KD and Kyrie decide that they want to leave after next season, or actually, I'm sorry, KD and Harden, they're the ones who have the, the opt-outs after next season. If they decide they want to leave, you know, 
they're gone. I mean, it, it's just that simple. So the Nets could be irrelevant. So while I'm as as negative as I've been around Stevens, honestly, if you're saying like a seven year term, you know, maybe the Celtics make a great pick. Maybe they back into what if what if LeBron James Jr. They have the number one pick. LeBron's going to go and play for them. He he's he's already said it. So. A lot can change in the NBA, and I think that's the one interesting thing. I agree with you. The answer is no as things stand right now. Um, But in two years from now, the entire Eastern Conference could look completely different than it does now. And doesn't Giannis have in like three years, I think Giannis has an opt-out. So like, I mean, this entire Eastern Conference could be flipped on its head. Uh, But yeah, as, as things stand now, I don't see the Celtics being relevant for the next, you know, two to four years. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I would say that the Aaron Rodgers saga has captivated people in a very unique, interesting way over the past few months. I know that there are some elements of Brett Favre involved. I know that there's elements of any type of player who stepped away even when they were in the prime of their career, like Michael Jordan. But Rodgers is doing it in a way that is making us ask questions about the value of athletics versus entertainment, the value of celebrity versus skill, all these weighty things. And I think that everybody has an opinion on it. And you kind of have an interesting angle that you were pitching to me earlier this morning. Uh, and I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you lay it out. And I want to see, uh, I want to see exactly where you are with it. And then I kind of, I'll respond to it after you kind of lay out your case for what you're thinking. Well, the idea is that right now, I think Aaron Rodgers is playing chicken with his legacy and the, the way I'm kind of equating it is that, you know, he's a, a train going at warp speed, Um, and he's approaching an immovable object, which is the Green Bay Packers, right? We know the Green Bay Packers aren't going anywhere. At some point, Aaron Rodgers' train tracks are going to run out, just like Tom Brady's at some point. And in between him and the Packers is his legacy. And it's going to be on Aaron Rodgers to decide what he wants to do. Does he want to smash headfirst into that legacy and the Green Bay Packers and retire like Calvin Johnson did? Or does he want to hit the emergency brake try and play, you know, maybe one more season with the Packers, try and win another Super Bowl and elevate himself to a, to a level that he's just not at right now. The reality is, is that Aaron Rodgers is kind of like that. He's in the conversation of most skilled quarterbacks you've ever seen, but he's not even the leader of current quarterbacks. So you have to say Patrick Mahomes is more skilled than him, even though Patrick Mahomes has played 15 fewer NFL seasons than, than Aaron Rodgers, right? So if we're just comparing Aaron Rodgers to Patrick Mahomes, he's already behind in that conversation. So the only way for him to elevate his status is by continuing to play, by trying to win another Super Bowl. And if he doesn't accomplish that, I'm going to look at him the same way as I look at Brett Favre. He's a great quarterback, certainly one of the most talented quarterbacks I ever saw play. You know, with Favre, it was the arm strength and his just kind of crazy delivery sometimes of, of these just insane throws. With, with Rodgers, it's his ability to throw on the run. I've never seen anybody be able to do it. Now I've seen Patrick Mahomes do it, and that's definitely impressed me. But if Aaron Rodgers is going to retire after or before this season and just say, you know, I'm done, I'm not playing for the Packers. I mean, first of all, he has every right to do so, and he'll still be in the public 
uh, he'll still be in the public eye because he clearly likes to be in the public eye. And if you're an athlete, uh, former MVP three times, you know, you're going to stay in, in the public as long as you want to. I just think his legacy would be less than what everybody makes of it right now because he'd be forgotten by so many people. He'd be forgotten because he's been overshadowed by Tom Brady and now he's being overshadowed by Patrick Mahomes. You could say he was overshadowed by Peyton Manning, um, you know, certainly to a lesser extent. But in terms of Super Bowls, Ben Roethlisberger has more Super Bowls than him. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think that for me, I'll always remember Aaron Rodgers if he does retire before this season as one of the greatest uh, quarterbacks I've ever seen play. But I'll certainly also look at his career as a big what if. I agree with you to a certain extent, and I, I think we're both on the same page that Rodgers, it's his life. He should do whatever makes him happiest. I don't think it's totally unfair if he were to walk away to at least raise questions of while well, he walked away when things continued to get hard because they have been hard. It would be unfair to him to say that things have been peachy keen his entire career and he's simply walking away at the first sign of adversity. He's asked the Packers to address that adversity, which would be his lack of, of weaponry uh, at, the, at the wide receiver position. They responded by drafting his replacement without, without asking. I can understand why that ticked him off. I can wonder, understand why that frustrated him. But it still would be walking away from an opportunity to – let me approach it from this angle. It, it'd be walking away from the opportunity to win one of the biggest screw you titles ever whether that be with the Packers or whether that be with the secondary team. And ultimately that's kind of why I think that's where I think the situation is going to play out. I think that there's a very real chance he doesn't play this year. Right. And I think he goes, does whatever he wants to do. I identify with him so much being in Hawaii, kind of having this midlife crisis at 37, you know, like freeing his mind a little bit, just getting into like feeling the lay of the land. I love it it mirrors so many things that I'm feeling in like getting a little more comfortable with yourself. And I, I wonder if you felt the same thing too, but I think it's a very reasonable thing to be like, this is who I am. Maybe I want to explore what I really have value in my life. But I think the itch to play football and be so good at it is going to come back for him. And if he's ultimately able to land in a better situation two years from now, not this upcoming season, but the next one, I do think that he'll keep himself in shape. And I do think that he has potential to be more productive than Drew Brees was in his forties and not, not chase quite Tom Brady level as and into his mid forties. But I do think going somewhere else and winning a Super Bowl would cement it as this is a guy who did it his own way. He'd be like the Frank Sinatra. He would be seen as kind of like, you know, LeBron James embraced the super team. And now the super team is what the NFL is all about. And he wouldn't be the trailblazer when it comes because I think that Brady kind of showed what could be done. And even he was following Peyton Manning who went to, to Denver and won a Super Bowl when he couldn't throw a pass. So I just think that legacy, there's so much to be written in terms of Aaron Rodgers' legacy going forward. I'm not so sure how much of it is going to have to deal with the football side of things overall. Um, but if he comes back and he plays three more seasons and he never advances to a championship conference championship game, 
would that change the way you view his legacy? Would you give him points for sticking it out and, and trying to do it? Like, I'm just trying to get your metric for what you really want to see out of him. And if it's only dependent on the uh, results or if it has to do about um, the choices he makes. No, I think that's a really great point. There's one major issue. If he sits out this year, his contract doesn't toll and the Packers still control his contract for the exact same amount of years as if he, as if he, you know, as if he was out for the entire year. So, you know, that's the issue that Aaron Rodgers faces. He's in Megatron. He's in Calvin Johnson territory. And ultimately the Packers are going to decide his fate. So either he can play ball with them or he cannot play ball with them. But if he doesn't play ball with them, they're not just going to magically a year from now say, okay, well now we're ready to move on from you. And we're going to, they're going to screw him over. And whether that's fair or not, those are the rules in the NFL. And we've already seen what happened with Calvin Johnson. He had a disassociation with the franchise for however many years. And now they're finally making up because they're finally going to pay back that bonus that he had to give them back that money. But, you know, Aaron Rodgers would have to give, first of all, $35 million back to the Packers if he doesn't play this year. Um, His contract doesn't toll. He doesn't have any more leverage next year. In fact, he hurts the Packers chances of trading him because now they're going to get what? A first round pick for a guy who's been out for a year. So, I think I know where you're coming from in terms of like, you know, should he just, you know, shut up and play or or should he, you know, just, you know, try and stick it to them and and do it his way. I don't think he has a choice. I think if he wants to have that opportunity to have a, you know, a screw you Super Bowl, which by the way, I love that thought process. I got excited thinking about Aaron Rodgers winning it with like the Raiders or something or the Broncos, obviously I know they've been the, the primary thing, but like imagining him winning a Super Bowl with another franchise and like having like under his shirt, like a, a Packer shirt or something like that. And like, LOL, I don't know like what I'm, what I'm imagining, but that would be amazing. But it's, but maybe the real screw you Super Bowl is winning it with the Packers. The ultimate story is him coming back to the Packers and him just dumping on the franchise and being openly antagonistic and just disrespecting them and trash talking his own front office who has no choice but to play him and then going out and winning the Super Bowl. I mean, I think as as content creators who traffic and clicks, that's the ultimate scenario. And just saying it out loud, it seems like one of the more likely ones because I don't think he's going to pull the trigger. I personally, from the limited conversations I've had, I can do a little bit of background reporting and reveal this. I think that other people are putting his chances to get the full-time Jeopardy gig far higher than they are in actuality. I think it's basically the reporters like, oh, the producers loved him. Well, guess what? The producers tell everybody that they love you and like, oh, we wish you could get more reps. You don't have a lot of conversations that says, yeah, we didn't really enjoy your hosting. Like that's not the conversation that that representatives here. So I think maybe the thing that we could all root for is for Rogers to feel the way that he does but then also go out there and suit up for the Packers and just kind of have it me against the world. Because ultimately I don't know if the teammates would side with the organization over Aaron Rodgers. Like if he comes back, I think that they know which side of they know where their bread is buttered and they need Rodgers to be Rodgers. So I think that they would like maybe not be openly in revolt with them, but I don't think they would ever say a negative thing about him publicly. They definitely wouldn't. And Devontae Adams already came back or or tweeted out when the whole thing was going down. And he said, you know, I'm following my quarterback or whatever. Right. Like he so he's already said that. I love what you're saying. I think that's exactly what Rodgers needs to do. I think Rodgers needs to come back. He needs to play amazing. He needs to, you know, 
win whatever as much as he can win he throw as many yards as he can and then you know he can ask for a uh, his release or trade after another season at which point i think the packers would be hard pressed to keep him for another year um i believe it's a team option moving forward um after this season i'm not 100 percent about that so so forgive me if, if that's incorrect all you people out there listening um but the reality is that his best option to get that screw you Super Bowl, whether it's with the Packers or without the Packers, his only option is to play this year for the Packers. If they're going to call his bluff, then they're going to call his bluff. But then he can he can kind of hold his own destiny in his hands at least. And you brought up something that I would just be amazed by. Could you imagine if Aaron Rodgers threw for five touchdowns in week one? And then he said, yeah, I would have thrown for six if Brian Gutenus knew what he was doing. You know, like that passive aggressive, like, just ripping the team. And I mean, they can find him, but it's not going to be a fine of big enough value that it's going to matter to him. And then he just continues to play amazing and he continues and he seems like he has a good relationship with LaFleur. So that's, that's good. You know, that, that he has a good relationship with the coach. He doesn't rip the coach, right? Kind of like a locker mentality. It's us against them. And it's us against the rest of the NFL. I think that could be a galvanizing thing for them. And there'd be nothing more that I would love to see than for Aaron Rodgers to win one more title, because I think at that point, then he could go out on his own terms and whether it's, you know, again, requesting that trade and getting that trade or uh, just retiring after another Super Bowl, then I feel like there would be no question about his legacy. But the fact that, you know, he's lost, I, I want to say it's, it's four or five NFC championship games straight since he, since he had that win and then went on to win the Super Bowl. He has not performed well in those NFC championships games, even in this last one, you know, you, the, 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 inter, the interception was definitely a pass interference call, but you know, he hasn't performed well in those. So you, you have to say that his legacy at this point is one of the greatest, you know, one of the greatest athletic quarterbacks you've ever seen throw the ball, but only if he had done a little bit more. And I think that he feels the same way. He's ultra competitive. He's supposedly talking to Tom Brady about how to keep himself in shape. He wouldn't be doing that if he wanted to just take selfies in Hawaii. That's not what his life is about. His life is about competing. His life is about proving people wrong. He's done that kind of throughout his life. Um, and I just feel like he owes it to himself and his legacy to give one more year with the Packers, you know, go out there, beat everyone's ass, maybe win, maybe win it all. But if not, after that season, then he can kind of go and choose his own destiny. All right. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's good perspective and it's, it's cool to have this conversation because like, it's just a little peek behind the curtain. I feel like I'm a little bit more of a dreamer in, in, in fantasy land. I feel like you have your feet on the ground a little bit more when it comes to reality and like buffering up against these situations. And I do think that hearing you lay it out like that, I, I am of the mindset, like at the beginning of the day, I was kind of like, Aaron Rodgers doesn't care about his legacy. He simply doesn't. He wants to be his own person. The more I think about that, I'm surely he cares about his football legacy. Maybe he doesn't care about it as much as a, like a lot of talking heads pretend they want to compare, care about it on television. But obviously there's a part when you're that competitive for that long, you care a little bit. And at least you care what the people who are going to assess it fairly have to say. Like you can discount a lot of people who are just going to go and try to get as much attention for whatever they're saying, uh, it, no matter if it's based in reality. But I do think that you care about certain amount of people in the in the industry that you respect. Well, I think especially when you look at the competition he's had throughout his career, I mean, you're, 
if, if Patrick Mahomes pans out to what everybody expects him to be, you could make an argument that Aaron Rodgers played against three of the five best quarterbacks of all time, right? Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, and Patrick Mahomes, which is pretty incredible to say, um, but it does leave him on the outside of that conversation looking in. And I really think that he doesn't want to be on the outside looking in. All right, Brian, thanks for joining me. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I have to contractually say that, but uh, I, I would have said it anyway. <laughs> it's been fabulous coming on here. Anytime you want to talk Coach K, Aaron Rodgers, um, or uh, the Celtics, I'm, I'm game for it. All right, well, I'll, I guess I'll book you for tomorrow then. We lost the Knicks, though. We didn't talk Knicks. All right, well, hopefully they'll win again. <laughs> Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.